everyone, and welcome to Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. My name is Michael Bradley, I'm your host, and this is episode 18, which means the podcast is officially old enough to smoke, vote, and die for its country. But not drink, because hey, we don't want to go crazy or anything. This episode, we are back in those wild and woolly days of the Bronze Age for a look at World's Finest Comics, number 301. According to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the book was released on December 29th, 1983, making it the most recent issue of World's Finest Comics that we've covered on the show. But by only a small margin, as we covered issue number 299 back in episode 4. You do remember issue 299, right? The story with the warring aliens underground and the cosmic tree nonsense, all wrapped up in a BDSM cover featuring an axe-wielding shirtless Batman? Yeah, I don't blame you for forgetting that either. But hopefully this issue will be better than that. The issue has a March 1984 cover date and 32 pages for the price of 75 cents. And the cover is by Ed Hannigan and Klaus Janssen, and it shows... A giant Godzilla-sized Superman with electricity crackling from his eyes and surrounded by Kirby dots, cornering Batman and a guy who looks like he tried to join Hydra, but they rejected him because he was wearing a red costume and a pumpkin on his back. I have no idea what's going on here. And don't get me wrong, it's a good-looking cover. I mean, Hannigan and and Jansen can do little wrong. You know, Jansen is a, a classic inker who has inked comics for several years at this point and Ed Hannigan is a another classic penciler who he, he really doesn't get the credit he deserves. But to, to get back to the cover, it just doesn't tell me a lot about the story. So let's get into it and see what's up. Credits for our 23 page story are Dan Mishkin and Gary Cohn writers Mike Chen pencils, Pablo Marcos inker, Carl Gafford colorist Phil Felix Letterer, and Roger Sliffer Editor. There's also an editor's note by the credits saying th- that this story takes place before World's Finest Comics issues 296 through 300. And what bearing that has on the story, I really can't tell you. Our story is titled Rampage, and begins with our red and purple clad figure from the cover being pursued through the streets of Gotham City by an enraged and powers-out-of-control Superman. As the Man of Steel's body crackles with energy, the cowering figure, who narration tells us is responsible for Superman's surging powers, is able to use a hologram projector to fool his pursuer and make an escape. He doesn't get far, though, as he's confronted by Batman, who was drawn to the scene by a blaze started by Superman's unleashed powers. After some Fighty McFightenstein, copyright 2012, Andrew Leyland, the guy begs Batman to help him, to which Batman replies he will, provided he explains what happened to Superman. The guy goes on to say that his name is Mort, I, I mean Siphon. He formerly worked for Star Labs, researching Superman's powers. Long story short, he created a phlebotinum, which was to drain Superman's powers into him, but it went pear-shaped and just made Superman into a crazy, supercharged energy being. Exposition out of the way, Batman and Siphon spend about five or six pages trying to outrun Superman, finally getting a break when Batman baits Superman into crashing into an electrical substation, temporarily stunning him. Retreating through the sewer systems to the Batcave, 
Batman makes alterations to the phlebotanum device, which Siphon says will reverse what's happened to Superman. Little does Batman know, though, that Siphon's supposed change of heart is all an act, and the adjustments are intended to fix the device so that it works as it was originally meant to. Just as Batman completes the changes, Superman crashes into the Batcave. Batman tries to use green kryptonite to hold off the Man of Steel, but is shocked to discover that kryptonite no longer affects him. True to his evil mustache-twirling ways, Siphon grabs the device and uses it on Superman, which drains the Man of Steel of his excess energy, but also channels it directly into Siphon. Batman is able to deactivate the device, but only after Siphon has absorbed enough energy to make him Superman's equal. And with that, it's time for another round of Fighty McFightenstein. Still copyright Andrew Leyland, all rights reserved. As Superman and Supermort trade blows in a thunderous round of fisticuffs. Unable to get the upper hand, Superman wonders if Siphon's gained all his powers, and whispers a plan to Batman. As Siphon tries to utilize his super hearing to listen in, he's hit with an overwhelming cacophony of sound, just as Superman had planned, remembering how difficult it was for him to master his own super hearing when he was younger. With the villain distracted, Batman hits Siphon with another blast from the phlebotanum ray, as Superman jumps into the middle of it all, overloading Siphon's system, knocking him out, and ending the story just as abruptly as it began. The End On this show, we've had good issues, and we've had bad issues. Just from the Bronze Age alone, we've had good issues, and we've had bad issues. And I've heard the last couple years of World's Finest Comics are pretty terrible. And after getting my first taste of that with issue 299, whenever I get an issue like this one that I've not read before, I get a little nervous. But I was pleasantly surprised here, because while not a great comic, this was perfectly serviceable, and I walked away feeling like I had gotten a satisfying story. It starts very in media res, which I'll I'll, I'll admit had me a little confused, but given the footnote I mentioned earlier, and that this was the only issue of World's Finest Comics credited to Mishkin and Cone, I was pretty confident that I wasn't missing anything. And even though I was thrown off slightly at first, looking at the story as a whole, starting the story that way had a lot more impact than, you know, introducing this guy and and seeing him create the device and so on. Because an out-of-control Superman is a scary thing. And an out-of-control Superman hunting you down should make you need to change your shorts. And Mishkin and Cone did a great job of setting up and building that tension and really making you feel bad for this more that you've got absolutely no connection to whatsoever. And believe me, he is a mort. This is his first and only appearance. He's just there to be the villain, to be the thing that causes Superman's rampage. Uh, The villain of this story could just have easily been Lex Luthor or Brainiac or, or dozens of other villains. But by not using a name villain, because they did use a lame villain, but by not using a name villain, by using this gaudily dressed Mort, they were able to really play up the tension and the idea that anything could happen to this guy. And that, as Batman points out about midway through the issue, Superman's 
completely out of control and is no longer restrained by his own moral code and could actually kill this guy. Um, it was hard to describe in the synopsis, but Superman is a major force in this story. Uh, not to be confused with Major Force, the Captain Atom villain. He's just a major force. Um, but he's, he's not Superman gone rogue or, you know, bad guy Superman. He's been transformed into a being of pure energy and rage. And it's even implied at one point that he's gone, that he, he's so far gone that he doesn't recognize who he's fighting. Over on page uh, 15, once Batman and Siphon escape into the sewers, the narration in reference to Superman, and I'm trying to pull it up here, one more page, okay. It says, There is no forgiveness, nor mercy, nor rationality left within the creature's tormented brain. Only an all-consuming flame of vengeance, seeking foes who have mysteriously eluded him. And a being of Superman's power with such a singular focus and no moral code or conscience to guide that, it, it, he becomes an absolute force of nature. And that's a scary, scary thing. And I really, really like the weight that that carries in this story. Um, and I also liked Batman's depiction in the story. Uh, the Batman we get here is the action, the action hero detective, similar to what would come along later in Batman the Animated Series, uh, but maybe just a little bit lighter in tone. Uh, not a lot, but but some. My favorite scene with with Batman is actually on the page after uh, the page I just read. But they've escaped into the the sewer system. They've gotten to the Batcave, and Siphon is looking around and he says, "The Batcave, huh? Do you bring all your new foes here on the first crime? You know, he, he's just being a smartass." And Batman whirls around and says, "I'm warning you, Siphon. The only reason I tolerate you is to help Superman." But you make one false move, and you'll find yourself flat on your back. So don't push it. It's just classic, classic Batman. Um, I thought the resolution, you know, tricking Siphon into to being overwhelmed with his superhearing as a distraction, I thought that was pretty clever. And then overloading uh, Siphon's equipment, that's a trick that Superman's used with the Parasite in various incarnations. It might not make the most sense, but it works and brought the story to a, a satisfying close. Um, in my synopsis, I, I said the ending was abrupt. And it is, because they take Siphon out, and that's pretty much the end of the story. But, you know, eh, it works. And, and overall, like I said, I, I walked away satisfied on this one. It was a nice, done-in-one, read-it-and-put-it-down popcorn muncher. And sometimes that's really all you need. I do want to talk about the art for a minute. Uh, Mike Chen isn't someone I was familiar with, but the, issue, the, the art in this issue is beautiful. Uh, it's dynamic and fluid. Both Superman and Batman look excellent. Um, I, I've talked before, I think, in previous episodes about how the, the artists who are best on Superman aren't always the artists that are best on Batman and vice versa. And it's it's... It can be a rare artist who can make both characters look really good, but Chen does a great job of it here. Uh, the issue gets a little rougher towards the end. You know, faces particularly look a little off, so maybe there were some deadline issues and he had to rush through it. But 
taking the issue as a whole, the panel composition and, and style and overall framing remind me a lot of Dan Jurgens. So that's right up my alley. Um, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, this is Chen's earliest work for DC Comics. He did one other issue of World's Finest Comics, so I look forward to being able to cover that at some point down the road. Mike doesn't have too much else credited to Chen. He's got uh, a penciling credits for only a couple years, and then he a lot of inking credits after that. But his penciling credits are composed mostly of random issues here and there. So I'm not really sure why he didn't do more penciling, but it's unfortunate because I really, really like what I see in this issue. But that's it for World's Finest Comics number 301. All in all, an enjoyable issue. Not one I would hold up among the greatest ever, but definitely a satisfying comic book read. And like I said, sometimes that's all you need. So right now we're going to take a short break, play a couple promos, and then we'll be back for a look at the book's other content and a look at what else was on the stands. It was the dawn of the third age of comics, 15 years after the rise of the Comics Code Authority. The Bronze Age was a dream given form. Its goal? To portray superheroes in a way that was socially relevant by tackling real-world issues. It's a catch-all, a place to explore monsters, demons, gunslingers, gods, and superheroes alike. Writers and artists wrapped in house styles of sophisticated realism, creating the stuff of legends. There is no assurance of quality, but it's our last best hope for comic books. This is a retrospective of the true golden age. The year is 1970. The name of the podcast, Uncovering the Bronze Age. Tune into our feed for regular content at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Also home to the Quarterbin Podcast and the Short Box Showcase. My name is Michael Bailey, and I am a terrible geek. I don't watch Doctor Who. I don't care for anime. I've never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I like Star Wars and Star Trek okay, but I've never really ventured far into the extended universes of either property. Hell, I have never even watched a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I have been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction that I may never recover from. To deal with this borderline personality disorder, I started a podcast in 2007 called Views from the Long Lost. Every two weeks, or so, depending on real life, I pick a particular series, or issue, or character, or whatever to talk about, and then I... Well, well, I talk about them, because that's kind of the point of a podcast. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I have a guest, like my semi-regular co-host, The Irredeemable Shag. Or my other semi-regular co-host, Thomas DJ, or with another friend from the podcasting world. The show is located at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. And from there you can find the iTunes link, the email address, as well as the backlog of episodes. Views from the Longbox. A podcast about comics, or a desperate cry for help? You decide. Every other Tuesday, or so, depending on real life at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. 
This issue, like so many issues, uh, so many Bronze Age issues of World's Finest Comics, has not been reprinted. And it's not been reprinted, reprinted, it's not been covered on any other podcasts, as far as I'm aware. So that means it's time to turn our attentions to the ads. And because it's the 80s, that means the ads are 80s-tastic. Uh, on the inside front cover, we have an ad for Frogger, the video game, now available for uh, half-dozen home consoles, including the ColecoVision, the Atari 5200, the Commodore 64, and the TI-99-4A. Uh, yeah. It, it is interesting because this ad brags about the game's state-of-the-art graphics. And it's, it's just hard to imagine a world when Frogger was considered state-of-the-art graphics. Uh, but the next ad is for... Well, it's kind of for video games. Apparently, around this time, Parker Brothers came out with board game versions of several classic video games, including Pole Position, Cubert, and Popeye. And I'm not really sure Popeye is a classic video game. I'm sure there has been several Popeye video games. But uh, this ad has the uh, face of... He's every 80s cliche tough guy kid you can imagine. He's got the greased hair. He's got the cool sunglasses. He's got the jean jacket with the popped collar. He's got the spiked choker. And his name is Dave Jackson, expert gamesman. And he's quoted at the top of the ad saying, Totally awesome, dude. Well, he didn't say dude. In my mind, he says dude. But the, the quote on the, the ad is just totally awesome. But then it has a longer quote from Dave Jackson, expert gamesman. And he talks about how after he spends five hours and 40 quarters playing Popeye, Cubert, and Pole Position in the arcades, I split for home. And not to watch some dork TV show either. I play more games. I got my new Parker Brothers Arcade series. They help me sharpen my strategies. Plus, I can play them with all my friends and beat them, which is one thing I can't do in the arcades. So get serious and pick up one of the Parker Brothers Arcade Series board games. Nothing is more totally awesome. Except me. Uh, Parker Brothers Arcade Series. The world's most totally cool board games. And that's exactly what the ad says. I am not making that up. The world's most totally cool board games. Alright, so we move on. We've got an ad for Garcia Fishing Poles which are being hawked by Spider-Man and a guy that looks like a really creepy Santa Claus. Moving swiftly on from that, we have an ad for Probe 2000, which sounds uncomfortable. Oh, this is the ad. This is the ad. I think we saw... Oh, no, 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 no. I take that back. This is, this is the same ad we saw in another comic. I forget which one, but it was for War Room. Uh... uh it's a video game called War Room for the ColecoVision, and it has the awesome tagline, Play the game the generals play, for real. Uh, I remember I remember mocking that very strongly in another episode. Uh, but then we're skipping very far ahead because there's several story pages without any ads, which is cool to see. We've got a hodgepodge ad, an ad for Warlord Toy... War... Why can't I say that word? War... Lord Toys. There we go. Uh, and 
this one you get a free comic book while supplies last. And moving on, we have an ad for the Zorcom spaceship, which is like a big inflatable tent thing that you could get for your child and they could hang out in and do stuff. Sounds really lame. So we move on. We've got the Meanwhile column where Dick Giordano is uh, just various random thoughts about the 1983 summer convention season. Uh, he mentions he's, he's name dropping a lot of people. Uh, Murphy Anderson, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, uh, Dane Jurgens, Jerry Conway, Mark Evanier, Dan Spiegel, Jerry Ordway, uh, Don Newton, Steve Gerber, blah blah blah. So we move on. We've got the letters page where they're talking about World's Finest Comics, number 297, um, possibly 296 and 298. We haven't covered any of those, so we move on. We've got an ad for Atari Force, the visual excitement of Star Raiders every month. And that's by that's a, that was a DC series by Jerry Conway and Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Uh, never read it. Might want to check it out at some point just for the Garcia Lopez art. The inside back cover is an ad for model cars, so we're moving on, and the back cover is for Masters of the Universe, the Power of He-Man video game for, looks like, Intellivision and the Atari 2600. Uh, this, this possibly, oh it is, it is the first Masters of the Universe video game. And in 1983, Masters of the Universe were pretty hot stuff. So. Now we've got that out of the way, now it's time to head on over to Mike's Amazing World of Comics at mikesamazingworld.com for a trip in the time machine to see what else was on the stands. And as I look through the list here, I see quite a few books that stand out, including several that have been covered on other podcasts. The first book I see is Best of DC Digest number 46, which is chock full of Jimmy Olsen stories dating as far back as the first issue of his own title, uh, all wrapped up in a great Ed Hannigan Dick Giordano cover that shows Jimmy clad in a Superman costume, soaring through the air and punching a big purple dragon beastie. And the cover is in reference to the Super Lad of Space from Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen number 39, which is reprinted in this issue. And that story features Jimmy stowing away on a spaceship, landing on another planet, and having a short-lived career as a superhero. Uh, next up is DC Comics Presents number 67, which has Superman teaming up with Santa Claus to take on the Toy Man. And this was covered by Charlie Niemeyer on Superman in the Bronze Age back in December 2012 as his Christmas special. And it's a really fun story. Kurt Busiek writes both Superman and Batman, as well as a lot of other DC stars for the very first time in Justice League of America, number 224. And this was Busick's second story for DC Comics, following what I, as I recall, it was a uh, Legends of the, the Green Lantern story, a backup story in an issue of Green Lantern. And speaking of Green Lantern, Len Wein's run on Green Lantern starts to build steam with Green Lantern, number 174, which you can hear all about on episode two of Green Lantern's Light, which was hosted by J. David Weeder, Jeffrey Taylor, and some other guy that I can't remember, uh, but I'm sure he's a really awesome podcaster. 
Uh, but speaking of other podcasts, we've got Infinity Inc. number one, the latest in Roy Thomas's long-running Earth 2 saga. And all of these books, of course, are being covered by Michael Bailey and Scott Gardner over on Tales of the Justice Society of America, which recently returned from a long hiatus, and they're back to recording new episodes again, and it's just like you remembered. Or don't remember. If you've never heard the show, you should listen to it. But if you have listened to it, it's just like you remember. And the cover of Supergirl number 17 boldly proclaims that the character is soon to be a major motion picture. And by soon, they mean about six or nine months from now, or just after DC canceled her book. Great planning. Action Comics number 553 has an excellent Gail Kane cover of Superman flying towards the camera, charging alongside the Forgotten Heroes, which is a team composed of Rip Hunter, Cave Carson, Animal Man, Congorilla, Dolphin, and a few others that, you know, a few other obscure DC characters. And they were a team created by Marv Wolfman. And I think they only appeared in a handful of Wolfman written issues in the Bronze Age. Uh, they were brought back post-crisis by another writer, and I'm blanking on where that was or who wrote the story. Uh, but it was a, a, a different team with, with mostly different characters. Uh, but All-Star Squadron number 31 brings in Uncle Sam and the Freedom Fighters, several characters formerly owned by Quality Comics, and like Infinity Inc., this and others from the series are being covered on Tales of the JSA. And the last book I see is New Adventures of Superboy number 51, which contains The Last Time I Saw Smallville, and that story was covered by J. David Weider, late last year as part of his backup series on Superman in the Bronze Age. And this issue, it it features a Frank Miller cover, which it's a really nice cover, but weird to look at and know that it's Frank Miller. Uh, but that's it for this episode. I want to thank you all for listening. If you haven't left an iTunes review, please think about doing so. It's been a while since we've had any for the show, or at least as when I'm recording this. And those iTunes reviews really do help people find the show and know that it's worth listening to. So if you have the time and haven't already, please consider leaving one. But that's all I've got for now. I want to thank you again for listening. Be sure to come back next time for another excellent Superman and Batman team-up, probably from the pages of World's Finest Comics, but we'll see. So thanks again, and I will talk to you all next time. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to Superman and Batman, hosted by me, Michael Bradley. Feedback can be sent to michael at greatcrypton.com. I love hearing from listeners, so be sure to send your comments, questions, and other feedback, and I will likely read that on a future episode. Show notes, information, and back episodes can be found at greatcrypton.com. Be sure to follow the show via Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe via iTunes or RSS feed so that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe via iTunes, be sure to leave a review. 
Not only does it help others find the show, but I'd love to read that in a future episode as well. Superman and Batman is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, home to many great Superman-related podcasts. Be sure to pay them a visit at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Batman was created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger, and both characters are copyright DC Comics. For more about Superman's creators, be sure to visit my blog, Siegel and Schuster Mythmakers, at greatcrypton.com slash Schuster, where I commemorate the lives, works, and legacies of Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. I want to thank you again very much for listening and invite you to come back next time for another episode of Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. closed out this episode. What is with these flies? Oh my gosh. Hang hang on just a minute. There. That's better. The music that closed out this episode was Power Struggle by Sunna from their 2000 album One Minute Science. If you like the song, I'd like to suggest you head on over to twochewfreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com banner on their site. Buy the song or the album or maybe some bug spray, and Two True Freaks will get a little commission off every purchase. Not only will you get new music for your library, but it won't cost you anything extra and help support one of the greatest podcast families out there. Flies not included.